The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> <laughs> Good evening. You're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome, dear listeners, to Season 14, Episode 15. I'm your host, Otis Jari, and in this episode, I'll be performing four tales to terrify you, courtesy of authors Warren Benedetto, Dominic Eagle, Kyle Harrison, and Brian Martinez. Tonight we'll hear stories of forest frights, dangerous domiciles, blustery bridges, and jeopardous jealousy. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first two spine-tingling stories. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu today to sign up. Thank you for your support. Now it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail, so lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. <laughs> the show's about to begin. <laughs> Have you heard of that thing? You know, that thing that hides in the woods. 
There may be a blurry camera shot here and there, but it's definitely a thing that exists. Sure, no one's ever caught one and lived to tell the tale, but they're out there, waiting, and the fact that nobody can prove they exist is exactly what they use to get you when you least expect it. In fact, let's begin tonight's excursion by digging into the dark of the jungle, where Warren Benedetto brings us the story of two children who have made a terrible discovery and must find the way home before they discover something much, much worse. Thing is, will they do it in time? Without further ado, I present to you No Bones, Just Skin. What happened to him, Manuel asked. The filthy soccer ball he'd been dribbling along the jungle floor rolled to a stop in a mud puddle on the side of the trail, suddenly forgotten. Manuel's older sister, Liliana, stood next to him, looking up at the body hanging high in the tree overhead. The carcass was little more than a shriveled husk of a man, a shrinkled bag of skin draped boneless and formless, across the jungle's dense lattice of vine and branches. It was almost as if the man had been turned into a garment, as if someone had slid him down the back, extracted his skeleton, then tossed him carelessly into the tree like an old bathrobe. Without a skull to give form to his face, the dead man's eye sockets were empty chasms. His mouth hung open in a gaping, toothless scream, framed by ash-colored lips, Oily black hair dangled damp and rope-like from his flattened scalp. There was no blood on his skin or on the ground below. Aside from a round hole the size of a thumbnail punched through his scalp, his whole body seemed wholly undamaged on the outside. There wasn't a scratch on it. Liliana swallowed the lump that had formed in her throat. There was only one way the body could have ended up in that state. It was an abuhuku, she whispered. Stop, Manuel pushed her hip playfully. Be serious. I am being serious. Manuel regarded her skeptically. He said those weren't real. I didn't think they were. The elders had cautioned Liliana about the abuhuwa, but she'd never paid much attention to their warnings. She thought the creatures were merely legends, superstitions, Figments of the elders' imaginations. But when she saw the skin hanging in the tree, all of the folktales instantly came to life. The stories were true. The elders were right. The Abuhua were real. What do we do? Manuel whispered. Shh! Liliana listened for any signs of the Abuhuku that killed the man. The air thrummed with the sounds of the rainforest, a cacophony of buzzing insects, calling frogs, and screeching birds. Droplets of water from a recent storm made flat, slapping sounds as they tumbled from the trees and dimpled the muddy ground. A holler monkey's throaty growl echoed through the treetops. Another howled in reply. Liana's eyes scanned the canopy, looking for any movement in the sprawling branches and drooping vines. The Buhua were agile climbers, long-limbed and lean, 
able to scale virtually any surface with the help of barbed hairs that coated every inch of their live bodies. Each abuhuku had arms like a spider monkey and an insectile head with bulbous black eyes and a large proboscis, as if the gods had grafted the head of a giant mosquito onto the body of an oversized primate. They were bigger than most men, stronger too. According to legend, the creatures moved silently through the trees, sneaking into villages at night to abduct grown men and women for their meals. They immobilized their victims with a paralyzing embrace, then carried the humans' unconscious bodies high into the trees to feed upon them. There, an abuhuku would puncture the victim's skull with its proboscis, inject a liquefying venom into its body, then suck the dissolved bones, muscles, and entrails out through the skull, leaving nothing but a desiccated corpse behind. Judging by the relative freshness of the skin Manuel spotted, it appeared the man had been killed as recently as last night. The abuhuku that took him may have sated its appetite, but that didn't matter. There could be others. The only safe place was back in the village, back in their tiny ramshackle hut with a thatched roof and straw-lined door, back where their father and the other men in the village could protect them from the abuhuku. Liliana and her brother had wandered far from home, mindlessly kicking the lopsided soccer ball between them while dodging mud puddles and ducking under low-hanging vines. She wasn't sure how far they'd gone, but she was sure that they were too far to yell for help. The abuhuku would surely get to them before the villagers, if their cries were even heard in the village at all. No, there was no help coming for them. They were on their own. Liliana spoke quietly into Manuel's ear. This way. She turned Manuel back into the direction of the village. And no matter what happens, don't stop. They can't see you when you're moving. Liliana remembered the elders telling her that the Abuhua had notoriously poor eyesight. Their large eyes let in a lot of light, which allowed them to see perfectly at night. But that night vision came at a cost. Their eyes took a long time to focus, so it was hard for them to identify moving targets. That's why they usually attacked after midnight, when their victims were deep asleep. At Liliana's urging, Manuel began padding through the jungle, picking his steps carefully to avoid any snapping branches or crunching leaves. Liliana followed close behind, cursing herself for not being more careful, for not paying more attention to their surroundings, for not heeding her elder's advice. She should have known better. The Abuhua were not a new threat. Her people had been hunted by them for centuries. Ancient carvings on the cliffs overlooking the village depicted scenes of carnage, with hordes of Abuhua attacking terrified villagers. In most instances, the creatures were shown seizing adults, while children were left behind defenseless and alone. Liliana wasn't an adult yet. She was only twelve, but she was close enough. If an abuku took her, Manuel would be left alone in the wild with less than an hour until sunset. Once the sun went down, the rainforest came alive with dangers. There were jaguars and anacondas in the trees, caimans and piranha in the water, 
poisonous spiders and frogs in the undergrowth. Nowhere was safe, especially for a five-year-old child. Of course, being eaten by a jaguar might be preferable compared to the alternative. It wasn't depicted in the carvings, but the stories about what happened to the children, orphaned by the Abuchua, had been handed down through the generations. After the creatures devoured the parents and left their empty skins in the trees to rot, the Abuchua returned to the village for the children. Not to eat them, but to abduct them. To adopt them. To raise them as their own. Children, reared by the Abuchua, grew to be bloodthirsty and murderous. They weren't physically consumed. They were drained of their humanity instead. They forgot where they came from and who they were. They found pleasure in cruelty, delight in suffering, pleasure in pain. Some even returned to their villages to aid the Abuchua in abducting other children to add to their perverse little families. In some ways, they were worse than the Abuchua because they all still looked human. They weren't, though. Despite their innocent appearance, they were monsters. Manuel looked back over his shoulder at Liliana. I'm scared, he said, his voice trembling. Tears cut clean tracks down his dirt-streaked face. I know, she replied softly. Me too. But just keep moving, okay? We need to. Liliana was interrupted by a deep growl that seemed to vibrate the air around her. The hair on her arms stood on end. A rancid stench attacked her nostrils, an odor like burnt hair and spoiled meat. Manuel spun around, his eyes as wide as full moons. Liliana held her finger to her lips in the universal gesture for quiet. Manuel nodded. His chin quivered. Fresh tears streamed down his cheeks. The growl rumbled again. This time it was answered by a series of clicks that sounded like pairs of large river pebbles knocking together. The clicks seemed to ricochet off the ground and the surrounding trees, making it an impossibility for Liliana to triangulate their source. It was irrelevant, though. Wherever the Abuchuku was, it was close. Suddenly, Manuel came to an abrupt halt, stopping so quickly that Liliana nearly collided with him. Don't stop. No, look. He pointed at an enormous tree a few yards ahead of them, directly in their path. It was truly massive, so large that it would take several men, licking hands, to fully encircle its trunk. Its bark was like heavy and thick armor, with a soft green coating of moss clinging to its surface near the ground. As Liliana watched, the bark seemed to ripple and buckle, as if the tree was collapsing in upon itself. It wasn't bark at all. It was an abuchuku. The creature's mottled brown hair had camouflaged itself perfectly against the tree. It only became visible once it began to move. The monster's horrifying insectile head rotated almost fully around, then tilted down as it spotted Liliana and Manuel, standing frozen just below where it hung. Its eyes were like polished orbs of volcanic glass, pure black and glistening wet. Its proboscis looked like an obsidian dagger, straight and sharp, with an elongated pointed tip. A menacing rumble reverberated in its chest. Go, go, Liliana cried. She grabbed her brother's arms and swung him around, 
pointing them back in the direction from which they had just come. It was the opposite direction from their village, but at that moment, it didn't matter. They just had to get away. Run! Liliana pushed Manuel to propel him into action. The boy stumbled, his arms pinwheeling as he tried to keep his balance. He fell to one knee, then scrambled to his feet and began to sprint. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Liliana was about to follow when she was knocked to the ground by what felt like a thousand pound weight. The abuhaku had dropped from the tree, landing directly on top of her. She could feel the creature's barbed hairs tearing at her skin as it wrapped its long arms around her, enveloping her in a crushing embrace. It pressed down on her, grinding her face into the soft peat of the forest floor, suffocating her. Mud filled her mouth and nose, clogging her nostrils and blocking out the rotten carrion odor of the monster's hide. Her eyelid tore against the sharp edge of a broken rock, blurring her vision with a wash of bright red blood. With her arms pinned at her sides, Liliana was unable to fight back. She tried to lift her head in an attempt to free her mouth from the mud so she could breathe. Through one half-closed eye, she saw that Manuel had stopped running. He stood motionless, glaring at the abuchuku. Let her go, the boy shrieked. He picked up a fist-sized rock from the ground and threw it at the creature. The projectile bounced harmlessly off the abuchuku's back. Undeterred, Manuel picked up two more now and threw those too. Liliana spat the dirt from her mouth as best she could. Her lungs were so constricted by the abuchuku's crushing hold that her words were little more than a whisper. Run! She gasped. Manuel ignored her. Instead, he picked up a large branch and charged at the abuchuku. Liliana couldn't see where the boy hit the creature but it seemed to have little effect. The abuhuku made a sonorous clicking sound, then tightened its grip on Liliana's body. She felt her ribs break. A bolt of searing pain caused her to scream into the dirt, and everything went black. Green and blue, leaves and sky. That's all Liliana could see as her eyes drifted open. She stared at the foliage, momentarily amazed at how large the leaves were. She'd never seen them up close. How could she, when they were so high overhead? A series of realizations hit Liliana, one after the other. She was in a tree. She couldn't move. She couldn't breathe. Her body felt like a bag of broken glass, with shards poking out in all directions. She had no control over her arms or her legs, 
Her limbs hung limp and useless in their sockets. Her mouth was full of grit and slime. Her pulse throbbed in her temples. Every heartbeat felt like a foot stomping on her skull. Liliana allowed her head to roll to the side. Directly beside her, no more than three feet away, was the empty skin of an elderly man. Tufts of white hair encircled what was left of his head. A neat round hole was punched in the center of his scalp, near the crown. His skin was a deep brownish red with dark striations that reminded Liliana of salted meat that had been dried for storage. The holes in his face, his eyes, nose, and mouth teemed with beetles and millipedes. As Liliana watched, a sharp-legged centipede emerged from the dead man's mouth and disappeared into a gash in his chest. The elderly man wasn't the only empty skin she could see. Parts of at least a half-dozen more deflated bodies in various states of decomposition were visible around her. Some hung draped over branches like laundry hung out to dry. Others were folded into messy piles of boneless flesh. One was spread-eagled across the web of dense interlocking branches, leaves, and vines that formed the floor of the Abuchawa's nest. A nest, she thought. Is that where I am? She assumed that she was. She must have been carried high into the trees by the Abuchaku that had attacked her. But it hadn't killed her yet. Why? A whimpering sound caused Liliana to turn her head in the other direction. Manuel was huddled in the nest nearby, his knees drawn to his chest, his arms hugging his shins. A heavy trickle of congealing blood ran down his face from a deep gash on his forehead. Long cuts and scratches crisscrossed his forearms, defensive wounds from the looks of them. His eyes stared at his bare feet as if he was trying to ignore his terrible surroundings by fixating all of his attention on his toes. Unlike Liliana, he didn't seem to be immobilized or seriously harmed in any way. Not physically, anyway. Liliana tried to speak to get his attention. Mm, she mumbled. Mm. Manuel looked at her. His face lit up. You're alive! He glanced around the nest, checking to see if any Abuchawa were around. Then he crawled over to her. Can you move? Mm was all Liliana managed to say. Manuel peered over the edge of the nest. We need to get down before they come back. They? Liliana thought. There was more than one? She wished she could ask Manuel what he meant, how many there were, but her mouth was, was not cooperating. Her tongue felt thick and numb in her mouth. I think I can climb. No! Liliana grunted tried to scrunch her eyebrows to convey her disapproval. There was no way he could climb down the tree without falling. There were no branches for the last thirty feet before the ground. He would need to descend the sheer vertical trunk with nothing but his bare hands. It was impossible. What then? His chin quivered, his eyes brimmed with tears. We end up like them? He gestured to the collapsed sacks of empty skin scattered around the nest. I don't want to die like that. I'm going to go home. I want to see Mama. I want Alma. Alma was the name of the stray dog the family had adopted when Manuel was just an infant. It had wandered into their village one night while they were asleep, finding its way into their house through a gap in the wall. 
The family woke to find the dog curled protectively around Manuel's sleeping form, one paw resting on the boy's chest as it snored in time with his breathing. Their father wanted to get rid of the dog to send it back into the jungle where it came from. He barely had enough food to feed the family, let alone a snaggletooth mongrel with a broken tail. But when he saw how attached Manuel had become to his new friend, he relented. Alma was allowed to stay. Liliana wondered what Alma would do if she were in the Abuja's nest with him. She pictured the dog's wiry black hair standing on end, its lips drawing back to expose its crooked yellow fangs, its brow drawing low over its cloudy gray eyes, a deep growl rumbling in its chest to warn off the Abuja. Alma wouldn't let anything bad happen to them. She would protect them. She would save them. As if on cue, a resonant growl vibrated the floor of the nest under Liliana's body. For a moment, she believed she had summoned Alma, as if the dog had somehow been magically transported into the nest. She felt an unexpected surge of hope. Everything's going to be okay. Then Manuel began to weep. They're back. He whispered. He retreated into the corner of the nest where he'd been sitting before, pressed his back against the tree trunk, and hid his face in his hands. The nest swayed as something heavy climbed into it from below. An odor like decomposing flesh wafted over Liliana's face. Her stomach convulsed at the smell, causing a jet of hot bile to stream into her mouth. She swallowed the acid back down, grimacing at the sharp sting in her throat and the sour taste in her mouth. It wasn't Alma, and it was a buhuku. As Liliana watched in horror, the creature crawled past her toward Manuel. It wasn't the same buhuku that attacked her. She was sure of it. This one was female. It was smaller and less muscular than the first, with a half-dozen elongated pendulous breasts dangling from its abdomen. Beads of yellow-white milk seeped from its nipples and dripped onto the floor of the nest. Liliana tried to move, tried to scream, tried to do anything to distract the creature from approaching her brother, but her efforts were futile. As the female drew close to Manuel, it made a cooing noise. It seemed gentle, affectionate, almost maternal. The abuhaku reached out one of its long, multi-jointed fingers and touched the gash in Manuel's forehead. Manuel jerked away and sobbed into his hands. His entire body began shaking with fear. The abuhaku cooed again, then scooped a drop of milk from its breast with its finger and wiped it across the cut. Surprisingly, the gash began to close. The skin was healing. The Abuhaku sat on its haunches in front of Manuel, wrapped its arms around him and pulled him closer, like a mother hugging its young. Manuel tried to twist away, but the thing was far too strong. With one enormous hand, it drew Manuel's head back so that his face was out of his hands. His eyes were squeezed shut. Mucus ran from his nose and over his quivering lips. He moaned in fear. The Abuhaku forced Manuel's face against one of its breasts. He tried to resist, but he was unable to break away from the creature's powerful grasp. The Abuhaku pressed its fingertips against the hinges of Manuel's jaws, forcing it open against his will, 
then inserted its thumb-sized nipple into his mouth. His body tensed, then relaxed. His mouth pulsed involuntarily as he began suckling on the abuhuku's breast like a newborn. The creature cooed again and lovingly stroked the boy's cheek with its finger. The female abuhuku turned its head and stared in Liliana's direction. At first, Liliana assumed it was looking at her. I'm next, she thought. But then she heard a low-pitched snarl behind her. A powerful pair of arms lifted her from the ground. As her head flopped back on her limp neck, she found herself staring into the soulless eyes of the male abuhuku. Her reflection was distorted in its glassy black orbs, but she could still recognize the look of abject terror on her face. The male abuhuku wrapped its fingers around the sides of her skulls, held her head steady, and pressed its proboscis against her scalp. She felt a distinct pop as the blade-like appendage pierced her skull. A searing pain raced through her body like liquid fire, radiating down from her head into her torso and out through her extremities. She wailed in agony, expelling every ounce of air from her lungs. Drawing another breath was impossible. Her oxygen-starved brain began to shut down. Her vision blurred. Her heart seized. Her breathing stopped. As Liliana lost consciousness, the last thing she saw was Manuel nursing contentedly on the female Abuhuku's breast. His eyelids fluttered open. He looked directly at her. There was no flash of recognition. No hint of concern. Just a small, satisfied smile as they watched her life slip away. I hope you enjoyed No Bones, Just Skin by Warren Benedetto, as performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed that tale and would love to read more from tonight's very talented feature author... You can help support them by visiting simplyscarypodcast.com slash warren-benedetto. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash w-a-r-r-e-n-b-e-n-e-d-e-t-t-o. Thanks again for your support of this program and tonight's featured author. While you might have to dig around in the deepest, darkest recesses of dangerous places, like the rainforest, the ocean, or even New Jersey, looking for strange creatures, sometimes you don't have to go far at all. Some lurk in the recesses of suburbia, perhaps digging around in your trash cans at two in the morning, and can be very surprising when you're just expecting a raccoon or two. But even worse is when you're somebody, like part of the mail delivery service, and you already have to deal with enough problems. Dominic Ego presents us with just such an unlucky fellow who's about to run into something he definitely is not expecting. Without further ado, I present to you The Postman. I've been delivering mail for 15 years, and it's mostly an uneventful job. 
I might glimpse the occasional nude person, pet a dutiful dog, or overhear a conversation worthy of a soap opera. It's not a job of thrills, and that's exactly why I've always loved it. It's peaceful, tranquil, a still, silent world in those pre-work hours before people spill out of their homes for the morning commute. Nothing ever happens. Until last winter. I saw something. A horror that I'm still struggling to put into words. Nobody believes my story, and why would they? I scarcely believe my story, and I know it to be true. So if you find yourself doubting the truth of my tale, I don't blame you. But just know that no matter what you think, these things truly happened, even though I wish that were not so. Let me start from the beginning. I'm no nosy Parker, but some things are hard to ignore. The family at one particular house on my circuit was the prime example of that. Most days, I'd have letters or an Amazon parcel to deliver to them, and it was always the same story. Father in the lounge, kids quivering on the sofa, and obscenities being yelled. Sometimes, the mother, black-eyed and bruised, would be crying in the doorway between the lounge and the kitchen. I'd only glance through the living room window for a second, but that glimpse told me everything. Every time I delivered mail to that house, I'd hurry up and down the front path as quickly as possible. I didn't want to be caught up in the middle of that horror scene. Unfortunately, one fateful day, that was exactly what happened. In the blackened twilight hour of a wintry postal round, I saw something in that family's house. Something for which no human words exist. For the thing itself doesn't exist. I know that. My logical, pragmatic mind knows that. And yet, I cannot deny what I saw with my own eyes. As I walked up that dreaded path, stomach in a knot, I found myself looking at an empty living room. Odd. It was the same delivery hour as usual. I wanted to just deliver the mail and be on my way, but something wasn't sitting right. My instincts were going haywire. I strolled across the front lawn to peer through the lounge window, and that was when I saw something horrible. In the kitchen, the mother's body was sprawled across the tiles. Only her legs were in view. The rest of her body disappeared around the corner of the doorframe. Blood stained the tiled floor, and her legs seemed still. I'd never felt so afraid, and I don't know how long I was transfixed by the sick scene. My brain couldn't fathom the gravity of the situation. Nothing about it felt real. And yet, I had only scraped the very tip of the iceberg. Eventually, with two shaky hands, I summoned the courage to pull my phone out of my pocket. It slid around on my sweaty palms as I clumsily dialed 999 with one hand and held the device steady with the other. After stating the emergency service I required... I was immediately patched through to someone, but the wait felt endless. And once the police's voice emerged from my receiver, I immediately started to gush about what little I knew. I was promised that responding officers would be there in ten minutes, and I thanked them. This would be the longest ten minutes of my life. When I got off the phone and looked back up, the body had vanished. The pool of blood remained, but the legs of the mother had slid out of sight. 
My body started to convulse in terror as I wondered whether I'd been spotted by the unseen assailant. I wanted to flee with every fiber of my being, but I wouldn't have been able to live with myself if I'd done so. I thought about that poor family, the snippets of horror I'd witnessed over many months that finally slotted together like the pieces of a terrible jigsaw. A jigsaw I should have uncovered long ago. Perhaps I could have prevented everything that happened if I'd only intervened sooner. But I had my chance for redemption, and I wasn't planning on squandering it. I didn't want to live with the prospect of being a coward for the rest of my life. Ten minutes until the police arrived. The father could be long gone by then. I had to wait. Not that I was much use, but I waited nonetheless. So... Be of use, I thought to myself. It was the most foolish thing I'd ever done, but I decided I had to act. Was it impulsiveness or guilt at the thought of my previous inaction? Hard to say. Perhaps the adrenaline of the situation had frazzled my better judgment. Whatever the true reason for my moment of madness, I dropped my mailbag on the lawn and took purposeful strides to the gate around the side of the house. Summoning every ounce of breath in my lungs, I inhaled deeply, puffing up my chest into something that I believed was intimidating. I'm sure in my luminous jacket and scruffy trousers I must have been the farthest thing from intimidating, but it didn't matter how I looked. My toughness would have no bearing on the situation. I had no idea what I was about to endure. I opened the gate and tentatively crept down the side alley. The garden, from what I could see, was overgrown and unkempt. From the front, the property looked shabby but relatively put together. The rear of the property was telling another story entirely. It was neglected, near apocalyptic, a wasteland. I know those homes well, I know the whole town well. And that street was built two decades ago. Yet it looked as if the lawn had remained untouched since the day the family moved into the house. Everything about that place was a warning sign. My limbs were working against me, legs buckling as I walked towards the side door. My brain was telling me to run. My body was telling me to run. Everything was telling me to run. And yet I plodded onwards, propelled by some inexplicable urge to prove myself or offer reparations to the family for my previous dismissal of their situation. The side door was coated in scratches, deep crevices that were clearly carved by some sort of animal. But I couldn't say what kind of animal. Certainly not a dog, a cat, or even a wild creature. There are foxes and rodents in this county, but none of them could have left indents so severe. I could have been forgiven for not turning around before that point, but placing my hand on the door handle was an act of utter stupidity. Bravery. Perhaps a combination of both. The door was locked. Given how forlorn and forgotten everything appeared, I had half expected it to be ajar. My heart was pummeling my ribcage at this point, but I had no idea whether the children were safe or not. I had to act before it was too late. So, with the sole of my shoe, I started to boot the side door. I used all of my might. It took a few attempts, but the wood snapped around the latch. 
I managed to wriggle the handle and clumsily push the door open, splintering the wood as I did so. Hello? I called. No answer. No sound. The door led to the utility room, a cramped space filled with messy piles of clothing. Bloody clothing. Or rags, I should say. Every garment was tattered and torn, barely recognizable as attire. But I hadn't turned around at the sight of any other red flags, so what could possibly have prompted me to leave at that point? And so I pressed onward, of course. Opening the door at the other end of the utility room, I finally had a clear view of the kitchen. I could see the horrifying spectacle in all its ghastly glory. The mother was still alive, though barely, and she was crawling through a puddle of her own blood toward her husband. He was lying in the farthest corners of the kitchen, clutching his blood-stained work shirt. There were dozens of puncture marks littering his shirt, and I saw the culprit, a stainless steel kitchen knife in the mother's hand. She used her left hand to pull herself across the towels while brandishing the sharp instrument in the air with her right hand. The father could only watch in horror as his wife slowly crawled towards him, contending with her own assortment of various terrible wounds. There were far deeper punctures in her skin, though. I couldn't see the weapon the father had used to create them. I took shaky steps into the kitchen, unsure of what I should or could do. Atop the kitchen counter, most horrifying of all, all three tiny children huddled together. None of them looked physically wounded, but they were certainly emotionally scarred. I'm a fully grown adult, after all, and I know I'll never scrub that memory from my mind. The police will be here any second. I feebly shouted from the kitchen doorway. The words escaped my mouth before I even realized I'd uttered them. I clasped a hand across my lips, and the father twisted his pale face toward me. The life was draining from his glazed-over eyes, but they still bored deeply into my soul. Haunting black eyes had terrorized his family for so many years. There was something deeply wrong with him, with him beyond the obvious. This was more than a human abuser. I could feel it, not just in his stare, but in the very atmosphere of the place. Those four walls felt like a cage, an ever-shrinking cage. The mother didn't even turn to face me after I announced my presence. She just kept crawling toward their husband, committed to her cause. So I locked my gaze on the children. Their frightened little eyes were swimming with tears. I motioned for them to carefully clamber down from the counter and come toward me. The eldest shook his head, but I pointed to the corner of the kitchen that was far from the horror of his parents' battle. I was indicating that it was safe. After a few minutes of deliberation, the eldest boy convinced his two younger sisters to slide across the counter and drop to the kitchen floor. They crept around the growing pool of blood on the floor, crying at the sight of their dying parents. My, the youngest girl bawled, but her brother firmly gripped her hand and gingerly led her away from the spectacle. When they finally reached me, I ushered them out the back of the house. As the last of the three children disappeared into the side alley, I felt a weight lift from my chest. It felt safe, though I was far from it. And then I turned to face the parents again. I wish I hadn't. 
The mother reached the father and she began to repeatedly plunge the knife into the near still body of her abuser. He lifted a trembling hand to her neck, but he was too weak to properly grip her. And she was too weak to do anything but plunge the knife into his flesh over and over again, a repetitive motion expending the very last of her life. I imagine she dreamt of doing that for years. And though I couldn't see her face, I knew she was in survival mode. She hadn't responded to words from me or her children. She just beelined for the monster that had been torturing her and her children for so long. I'm not sure whether her final act lasted a second or a minute, but eventually I was the last breathing thing in that kitchen. Both parents lay still on the holy red kitchen tiles. The mother had collapsed on top of the father, knife still in hand. It was a horror that I still struggle to put into words. And it would have been sufficiently terrifying if that had been the end of the horror. Mrs. Clarkson? I asked, timidly walking over to her corpse. She didn't respond. I knew she was dead, but I hadn't fully accepted that. Not yet. And I found my gaze drifting to the father, Mr. Clarkson. Though he was a monster, I couldn't bring myself to leave that room. If he were alive, I would have felt guilt for the rest of my life. It wasn't my place to strip children of their father, no matter how dreadful he may have been. Mr. Clarkson, I asked in a hoarse whisper, praying he wouldn't answer. I was praying he wouldn't utter a word, and he didn't. But he stirred. My body clenched as I saw it, a slight twitch in his left hand. The first movement from either of their bodies since Mrs. Clarkson's horrendous attack had ceased minutes earlier. There's no way he could have survived, I thought to myself in horror, squatting down. Absolutely no way. I inched closer on bent knees, flitting my gaze between his left hand and his eyelids. I dreaded seeing those black pupils again. I listened for anything. The sound of a heartbeat breath escaping his lungs, but there was nothing, and so I kept my eyes firmly fixed on his face, hoping that the police would arrive without a moment's notice, hoping, above all else, that his own eyes would stay shut. And then there came a crunch. My eyes shot down to his hand, and I screamed. His flesh had given away to a bulky, hairy fist, a clunky, oversized appendage that had cracked the towel beneath it and I trembled in terror as his clothes began to tear. Slowly but surely, starting from that left hand, his limbs began to enlarge and sprout hairs through the newly formed rips in his entire. I stumbled backwards, crawling across the kitchen tiles. I could only watch in silent disbelief as the man before me began to transform, body growing to fill the kitchen corner. I should have run for the side door, but my brain turned to mush. I spun around and darted through the living room, and when I turned at the doorway to the front hallway, I saw something horrible in the kitchen. Those black eyes. Mr. Clarkson was awake, and his transformation was complete. He lunged forward at a pace unimaginably fast. In the second it took me to slam the living room door closed... The man-wolf creature, the dog-man, had covered half the distance to me, and as I stumbled backward in the hallway, 
His gargantuan form came crashing through the wood of the door. His body was ensnarled in splintered pieces of wood, and his claws were mere inches from my face. I turned to the front door, ready to make my exit, but my stomach dropped. The front door was boarded from top to bottom. I didn't have the strength or the tools to remove the wooden planks, and so I made another foolish play. I began to dart up the stairs, ignoring the sounds of the creature, wrenching itself free from its wooden prison behind me. By the time I reached the upstairs landing, the beast had already pulled the living room door to pieces, and it was eyeing me from the downstairs hallway. Huge canines bared in a terrifying snarl. I sprinted across the landing, hearing heavy paws pound up the staircase, sounding as if they might fall through the floor. I prayed for that, but no such luck. I shut myself in the first room I found, a child's bedroom, and though my first instinct was to hide, my brain was starting to process the situation. I was gradually pushing myself into a corner. Soon there would be nowhere left to run and I would be yet another in many meals for this fiendish being. I wasn't going to let that happen, and so in the midst of my dizzying surge of adrenaline, I frantically looked for a solution, attempting to tune out the sound of the wolf-like creature, tearing doors from their hinges in its search for me. There were only four or five rooms upstairs. It would only take a matter of seconds for the demonic thing to find me, and I knew that. I knew I had to act, even if it were to be the last thing I'd ever do. I faced the window and took a deep breath. No time to find the key. The beast would be upon me before I could open it. I scooped up a cricket ball from uh, the boy's floor and hurled it at the glass pane, wincing as it burst through the center, forming a decent-sized hole with cracks spider-webbing outwards. I heard a mighty roar from the landing. Squeezing my eyes shut, I sprinted toward the window and prayed. As I hurled my body into it, the glass pane gave away and I plummeted to the ground below. I woke in a hospital bed, dazed and confused, mostly confused that I'd survived, as had the children. I never stopped thinking about that moment, that cursed twilight hour. The kids were adopted by their godparents, as far as I know. They live somewhere far away from here now. Hopefully very far away. For the father, Mr. Clarkson, he was never found. I pray he cannot find them. I pray he cannot find anyone. But I know in my heart that he's still out there, wreaking acts of atrocity. I still call him the dogman, but the truth is, I have no idea what I saw on that day. I hope you enjoyed The Postman by Dominic Eagle as performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed that tale and would love to read more from tonight's very talented featured author, you can help support him by visiting simplyscarypodcast.com slash Dominic dash Eagle. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash D-O-M-I-N-I-C dash E-A-G-L-E. Thanks again for your support of this program and tonight's featured author. 
And more than that, a thank you to all of tonight's featured authors. Now, before we go, I'd also like to take a moment to thank you personally for joining me on this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring Twice the Terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs. Or become a patron for as little as $5 a month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Jiry channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Story Time, dating back to 2014, 10 years ago. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram too. Just search for Otis Jiry. Until next week, stay spooky and get some sleep if you can. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, The Otis Jiry Channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name, and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, 
do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs>